Welcome to the Balmora Brothers Podcast. I'm your host, Philip, And I'm your other host, Jacob. Today we've got some current events to start you off. The NES Classic Edition has gotten an update from Nintendo. Xbox Scorpio news from Microsoft. A new Star Wars trailer has dropped and some comments on that from the director. And finally, Josh Brolin was announced as uh, Cable in Deadpool. So we're going to talk about that, or in Deadpool 2, I should say. What are we going on to next, Jake? After that, we've got a little bit of a pseudo-movie review. Um, we both saw both Beauty and the Beast and Ghosts in the Shell since we talked about them in our Hollywood bias segment uh, last episode. So we're going to launch into those with what our thoughts were coming out of the theater. And then after that, I think you've got some questions for me. Yes, yeah, so we're going to do a pretty interesting kind of new segment. I'm going to do a Q&A here with Jake. And this is going to be about LARPing, live-action role-playing, something that I know little about and Jake knows quite a lot about. So we're going to talk about that. And then after that, we are going to wrap up with what? After that, we have got our uh, What We're Playing Now segment. So we'll talk a little bit about the games that uh, we've got fired up on our consoles and PCs. All right. Well, with that, we're just going to dive right in. All right, Phil. So tell me what is coming out from the uh, world of Nintendo, because I hear it's quite a bombshell. Yeah, so this past week, uh, Nintendo announced that the NES Classic Edition is going to be discontinued. Uh, Those of you who've been following it, it is the hotly, not contested, uh, requested and desired holiday item from this past season. It's essentially a little emulator box that runs these NES ROMs direct from Nintendo. It's a mini NES that has, I want to say, 30 games. And it was really, really just wildly popular. And in typical Nintendo fashion, it was extremely hard to find. So the big complaint throughout its life cycle, which is about six months now, is that it has just been impossible to get your hands on. And it's one of those things where on eBay it's showing up for just crazy prices. So this past week, Nintendo, uh, instead of taking care of its customers and actually increasing supply and helping people out, decided to discontinue it. And this is their official statement. Quote, We encourage anyone interested in obtaining this system to check with retail outlets regarding availability. We understand that it has been difficult for many customers to find a system, and for that we apologize. We have paid close attention to consumer feedback, and we greatly appreciate the incredible level of consumer interest and support for this product. End quote. So, a couple things just off the top of my head. My biggest problem with this, in this quote, or in this statement from Nintendo, is the line, We have paid close attention to consumer feedback. That could not be any farther from the truth. Uh, Consumer feedback was that they really, really love the idea of playing these games that are, for a lot of people, their childhood or very, very uh, nostalgic feelings are elicited by this NES. And so, you know, that's a pretty potent drug and everyone wanted this thing and instead of actually letting people have it nintendo just kind of shafted everyone once again by uh totally hamstringing the availability and i know we talked about this in a previous podcast jake because you said you were looking for a 2ds for a long long time yep and uh and, and so this is kind of like that times 10 because not only is this something that everybody wanted but it's something that uh, Nintendo had such a great price on that I you just can't imagine they didn't know the entire time that for like $70 this thing or $60 was going to sell like gangbusters so I still haven't gotten the chance to pick one up and now that this has been announced I don't think I will 
but uh, what what are your reactions to this? I don't know what to think, really. Nintendo, I don't know. There's this like ranty reviewer, and uh, and he's turned Nintendo into a verb, and he's like, they really just need to stop Nintendoing it up. Uh, when he was talking about the Switch before it came out. And I've, I've got to agree here. Like, they just really need to get out of their own way. You've got something that's selling like hotcakes. You couldn't keep it on the shelves. Why would you cut that revenue stream prematurely? I mean, the thing's not even been out six months, a year, you know? Uh, so I just, I, I can't understand this from a business point of view. I mean, my only thought is maybe they're having, you know, second thoughts because part of their new subscription service is giving out all those old games as rentals as part of the uh, the new Switch platform. So maybe they thought that they were somehow in direct competition with themselves, that people wouldn't want to pay the subscription fee when they could just play an assortment of those old games for free on the uh, the home console the NES console. So, I've got nothing. I've I think it's disappointing. I think it's 100% like you said not what consumers asked for or wanted. Um we wanted more of them. We didn't want them to shut down the project entirely. So, and who knows, maybe this is a marketing ploy. Maybe they'll come back cuz like we talked about in the last episode, they're huge about artificial scarcity. So, maybe this is just something that we see come out once a year for the holidays, they release it as like a hot item for people to grab, and then it goes away again, like the McRib sandwich or the Shamrock Shake, <laughs> you know. So yes, who knows what they're thinking anymore? I've I've I'm done trying to figure out what the heck is going on in Nintendo Land. Couple quick thoughts to wrap this up. If any of you are on YouTube and, and are looking to just see a little bit more coverage on this, there is a pretty good video that a collector on YouTube did. His name is the immortal John Hancock, and he has a pretty interesting channel where he's got uh, one of the biggest collections, I would probably say, in, in the U.S. of retro games and really just consoles in general. And he had a pretty good video about this where he kind of discussed some of the potential objections that Nintendo. Uh, would have had to continuing to sell the system like apparently some people figured out a way to load other roms onto this thing so there was a piracy element and there was also the element of potentially stepping on the switch sales which i don't understand how you could think that a 60 dollar console is impeding the sales of your 300 dollar console that's not the same market but uh, the only thing kind of going back to your point, Jake, is that, yeah, this could have been one of the most clever marketing ploys ever where we actually may see a yearly re-release from Nintendo of like the SNES classic edition and the N64 classic edition. And that'll become like this holiday rollout where like they'll release this ROM packed collectible thing once a year. And when it's gone, it's gone. And this is just setting the stage for that. I hope that's not the case, but Nintendo will just keep Nintendoing. <laughs> Moving on, second bit of news, Xbox Scorpio specs were announced. So Xbox Scorpio is at least a working title for a new console that's coming out the end of this year from Microsoft. It's going to be an upgrade to the Xbox One in the sense that it'll still play Xbox One games, but it's going to be playing them natively at 4K. We've got a whole spec sheet here that I think we found on a Polygon page that's pretty in-depth as far as what it has and all the teraflops and gigawatts and whatnot. 
But at the end of the day, it's essentially going to be a 4K console. And um, the, really the thing that I actually found interesting about the release of the details were that they didn't go to like IGN and GameSpot and Polygon and release this initially. The first wave of details was actually given to Digital Foundry, which is this really interesting kind of media company. If you guys are techies like me and Jake are, I would actually recommend you checking out their YouTube channel because they do some really, really good coverage on like video cards and different kind of graphical systems and games and how they run pre and post patching. So they've got some awesome content. But anyway, the Scorpio specs were released. If this thing comes out and ends up being this killer console for like 600 bucks that runs everything at 4K, is that something you think you'd be interested at all, Jake? Not at current. I don't have a monitor to display 4K. And, you know, when the regular console itself runs 300 to $350, depending on how large you get in that hard drive, I think a $600 price tag is way up there. Um, you know, we talked about the stopgap, you know, with this Xbox that launched last holiday season, where it'll display 4K video, but the games aren't rendered in 4K natively, I think is how you describe the difference between what they did there and what they're doing with this Scorpio. And to me, that's really an insignificant difference. I'm not... 4K is awesome, and it is the future, and we'll get there. But launching it now at a $600 price tag, which is exorbitant, on top of the fact that you have to go out and get a TV that is 4K, it's, you know, it for people who are rich, I guess, this will be nice. But for my poor ass, not anytime, not anytime <laughs> soon. So, Yeah, that's kind of interesting to think about it that way, uh, especially because it, you think if you did have the money for a 4K setup and $600 for a console, then why not just swing an extra five to $1,000, $500,000 and get a gaming PC that will blow this thing out of the water. But you know, this is one of those things where it's kind of wait and see. The video game world is treacherous when it comes to announcements and tech demos and trailers. So there's a good chance this thing will come out and just totally bomb because it's not what it was promised to be but or what it was billed as. But I'm just going to wait and see. I don't even want to get jump on that hype train. Uh, next thing we had up, Jake, was some Star Wars coverage. I know you watched the new trailer, so what did you think about the new trailer before we go into the next part of this? I did. Um, I thought the trailer was good. Um, it was great to see some old friends. Uh, we don't quite see them in action, though. Us uh, specifically talking about, not Poe Dameron, but uh, Finn. Flynn. Finn. Um, you know, we still see him kind of like in cryo for a short shot. And so I I really hope that he gets better. <laughs> I love the dynamic between the three of them. I my favorite part about The Force Awakens was really the chemistry between those kind of lead three. They played off each other really really well and I really want to see their adventures going forward, you know? I'm excited. Uh the monologue seemingly by Luke kind of uh hints at I guess the announcement that the director made that he said that The Last Jedi is a singular and not a plural and that it is referring to Luke. Because um, in the trailer, in the voiceover, you hear Luke say, you know, if there's one thing I'm certain about is that the Jedi must come to an end or, or however he phrases it. 
Uh, so, you know, I think this is going to be a bit of a departure. You know, people who are, are fans of the expanded universe know how Luke started up a new Jedi Praxium and taught a whole new, you know, generation of young Jedi who came about in the, the New Republic. And that's not going to be the way it works here. You know, whether or not he continues training people or not and just comes up with his own tradition... Or if he decides maybe just the idea of traditions are too polarizing, this Sith Jedi thing, like if, if neither organization existed, would there really be a war between Force users or Force Adepts? Because we have seen now that they can exist outside of those groups um, with the, the monk character in Rogue One. Wow, I'm drawing a blank on that movie. Phil, help me here. Rogue One. Thank you. With the rogue, the monk character in Rogue One. So, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. I'm really excited to learn more about the Knights of Ren. I don't think they really figured into the trailer at all, but I would love to see some of that backstory and see what exactly, you know, the fall of, of Kylo was and who Snoke is and so I, I you know like I like I said when we reviewed The Force Awakens in our first episode it left me with a lot more questions than it did answers and I think that was intentional uh one for an interest get and two because that's really not J.J. Abrams bag you know I said before he's more about the hype and less about the specifics and I think he kind of just got out of the way for future writers and directors uh, to really get their hands on this uh, amazing intellectual property and tune it the way that they see that it needs to go forward in the future. So I'm excited to follow that story and, and see where we go. Yeah, and this one, I, th- I would just point out that J.J. Abrams is not directing this new one. So now, like you said, he's kind of leaving the door open for some other storytelling. I think this is Ryan Johnson is how you would pronounce that, R-I-A-N. Yeah. But it, the trailer did kind of make this seem like, and it could have just been the trailer, but that it was a little bit more of like a dark and brooding version of the Star Wars saga. Uh, the music was this sweeping kind of epic uh, overtones of the failing Jedi temple or whatnot. But, you know, I, I think either way, it's such an important property that there's just no way this is going to be mistreated. And I can't remember her name, and I'm sure you do, but the the uh, executive who runs this all, who worked on Jurassic Park and whatnot back in the day, uh, the woman who runs this, I can't remember her name, but anyway, she has done such an awesome job, you know, handling the franchise so far, I would say, that... I think it's going to be pretty pretty sweet. I agree. Last thing in current events. You probably care about this more than I do, but the new Deadpool film, Deadpool 2 is, I guess, the working title that's coming out, has got its cable, who is the trunks of the X-Men or Marvel Universe, the future warrior cable, and that's going to be Josh Brolin. Um, I've seen Josh Brolin in... Well, I've got his filmography here, but a couple of main things. I remember Sin City, Dame to Kill For. He's kind of the main character in that. Uh, no Country for Old Men and a couple other big movies. Um, any thoughts or feelings on Josh Brolin as Cable or one way or the other, anyone you had already pictured in the role that you're disappointed that will not be portraying Cable? No, I don't think there's anybody I'm particularly disappointed will not be in it. You know, I was kind of excited... Earlier on, they had like this 
picture of Ryan Reynolds, Logan, uh, Hugh Jackman, and Pierce Brosnan hanging out on the couch together. And it was like somebody memified it. And it was like what normal people see. And it's like what Marvel people see. And it had like Deadpool's insignia over Ryan Reynolds. And Logan had his claws or whatever. And then Pierce Brosnan was like all decked out as Cable. And I was like, you know, I could I could really see that. You know, because Cable is an older guy. Um, and it, so it, I think Brosnan would still foot that bill. He can still do the action kind of stuff. I don't know if you saw... The movie where they're trying to escape from Laos or Korea, I apologize, or maybe Vietnam. One of the the countries over in uh, Asia that's kind of war-torn. And Pierce Brosnan is like some kind of special agent in that who like saves the day and gets the family out of there or something. And uh, it was not a terribly memorable movie, I apologize. But it did show that he can still do that he still had that kind of physicality and that movie came out in the last two to three years so i was kind of excited to see you know him do the role i thought physically he does look the uh the part and if you know being james bond and remington steel he definitely could could pull that off but brolin i think he's a he's a good actor um he definitely has the look for it too um thanks in no small part to his father james brolin uh, who also kind of had that surly look about him. And uh, so I think I think it would be cool. That would be nice. What I really like about it so far is that it seems like he's really leaning into the role. Apparently he's made some tweets and has had some choice words for Ryan Reynolds. Uh, I think one of the hashtags is hashtag Ryan Reynolds is my bitch. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, so he's definitely got the sense of humor that I think that this property needs, you know, because Deadpool is just all about the irreverent humor. And so if if they're already in kind of like a Twitter flame war, I think that this can go nowhere but awesome for for the fans. All right. Well, there it is. That's all we're going to have for you for current events. We'll get back to you when Deadpool 2 does come out, once we get some more news on Star Wars. Maybe by the end of the year, we'll even have an Xbox Scorpio 2. Alright, so we're going to go ahead and move right on into our movies segment. A little backstory. So when I was on vacation, what I want to say was probably two weeks ago now, I was down in your neck of the woods in Orlando, and I saw both of these films we're going to talk about. I did see Ghost in the Shell with you and my fiance Gabby, and then uh, with the family we also saw Beauty and the Beast. So which one do you want to start with? Let's go ahead and start with Beauty and the Beast. That's what we started with in the uh, the previous episode. Okay, so I think when we touched on Beauty and the Beast in your Hollywood segment, the listeners may have gotten a slight tinge or, or taste of your disdain for this film. <laughs> Not that it was a terrible movie, at least in your eyes, I don't think, but the fact that I, I feel like you didn't appreciate it compared to the original and some of the changes they made were for the worse, but I'll let you flesh that out in a second. Personally, I actually really enjoyed it. I thought the retelling of the story for what it is, which is a retelling, was good. I'm not necessarily promoting the idea of these kind of rehashes because at the end of the day they are kind of these money grabs. But uh, if you're going to do it, do it right. Do up all the CG and just do it to the nines. So a couple things I really did like were all the original music was fantastic and I was okay with the performances by everyone 
Uh, Be Our Guest was actually probably my favorite song. Just that whole montage segment where there's just this crazy explosion of color and uh, and everyone's doing their bit. That part was just uh, just awesome. You know, it brought me back to being a kid and listening to that in the original and kind of what it would have been like the first time I had seen it when I was a kid. So I really liked that. Uh, I didn't necessarily care as much for some of the original songs, and that's just... I don't necessarily want to say that's a knock against the movie, but that's probably always the case. You know, if they remake any other Disney movie that's going to be a musical, any of the music that wasn't from the actual uh, first telling, I'm probably just not going to like as much. So some of that stuff I didn't kind of gravitate towards, but a lot of the other things I really liked. I thought Gaston was great. Um... Luke Evans, I would have cast him as Gaston. He is the perfect Gaston. And then aside from the fact that it was a movie about French people and nobody was French, it was very good. So, uh, And actually, one more interesting thing. I didn't realize this because I didn't pay attention to a lot of the marketing going into the film, but when we were leaving the movie, as all of the little title cards get shown and you realize who all of the voices were, or at least when the movie ends and, and they become people again, uh, I had no idea that that half of the actors were who they were, like Ewan McGregor and Ian McKellen. And then even going in, I had no idea these were, people were even in the movie. So I was kind of surprised they put that much star power behind a movie where the CGI is 95% of the character and the voice work is, is even kind of masked. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But overall, I actually kind of enjoyed it. And it was a good you know summer kind of popcorn family movie. But uh, on the other side, Jake, I don't think you liked it as much as I did. So go, uh, go into a little bit more detail about some of your thoughts on it. So we don't really have time. If any of our, our users are interested and you follow us on social media, um, you can find, if you care about my personal thoughts on this movie, you can shoot me a line there and I'll get more in depth with you. Um, the remakes so far have been hit or miss for me. Um, Cinderella was a really good remake. Um, the Maleficent movie is arguably the first of the remakes, and I thought that one was done pretty well as well. Um, I really, really did not like the Jungle Book remake. And the same director is at the helm of the Lion King live-action movie coming out, and I love him as a director. Um, I mean, I shared with you my love of... John Favreau's uh, movie where he, he he acted and directed in it, which was Chef. I thought that was an amazing film, um, but he really kind of fell short on a Jungle Book, and I'm afraid that, that that's going to happen with The Lion King too. Well, real quick, let me. I was just going to interject real quick, so not to rain on your parade, but just uh, you know, people who have or haven't already seen it. So I haven't actually seen the Jungle Book, but I know critically it did extremely well. So. I would just say that like when you say you don't like it, either as an homage to the original film or just as a movie in general, that's probably the minority opinion because I know, you know, it just seemed like that movie killed it at the box office and everyone loved it in the reviews, but continue. Oh, yeah. No, I understand that my dissent, it, I am the dissenting opinion. You know, I'm that Supreme Court justice who's writing the dissent. Um for this movie too like tons of people loved beauty and the beast this this remake um and i just didn't but i think the jungle book 
I was very familiar with the original film. It was my favorite animated movie of Disney's. Um, it's the last one he worked on, and so it has some significance to me because Disney is something of a, a hero to me. Um, also, the book that it's oh so loosely based on, I loved growing up. You know, I've read Roger Kipling's in Jungle Book probably half a dozen times from end to end, including all of these stories that don't have to do with Mowgli. And I... You know, so, so yeah, so that movie was going to be a harder sell for me. But as far as Beauty and the Beast goes, because that's what this is about, it was kind of like the same thing. Um, I, I came into it understanding that I had to keep an open mind. Um, I know we talked about, like, the X-Men movies bothered me, like, when X1 and X2 came out, like, all the differences. But then by the time X3 came around, I was like, you know what, you just got to let go. This isn't going to be the comic books. It's not going to be the 90s cartoon. Um, and they're going to do what they're going to do with these characters. And honestly, I think that that Marvel Universe, with the notable exception of uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, had turned into a really good story. You know, especially commingling with Logan that we reviewed so positively last time. Um, they really have done a great job with those characters. So I came into this with an open mind. And I was very apologetic of any changes that I thought were unnecessary um, leading up to the ballroom scene. And that's where I lost it. Uh, because unlike you, I was not satisfied with the way that they treated some of the old songs. And the most iconic song, I mean, Be Our Guest, of course, is a fan favorite. But when you think about Beauty and the Beast, you think about Angela Lansbury singing The Tale as Old as Time. And I think that these uh emma thompson totally nailed it vocally i mean she she has the chops to do it it's not at all her fault that i didn't like this song um but the way they chose to do it they actually had the vocal track following a different meter um than the orchestral track so what she's singing is no longer on the beat with the music and I don't know if that was some attempt to try to make the words sound more profound because they separated them from the music, but really it just fell flat. It's just a bad performance at that point. You know, it, you don't sing off tempo. So that was really where I was like, you know what? If that's the kind of change we're making, like at that point forward, I just couldn't forgive anything anymore. And it was just a nitpicky downhill from there. Um I think another thing for me, and I've I've noticed I've gotten I've gotten less and less tolerant of this as time goes on. But a pitfall that a lot of movies go through is show don't tell, um, and this movie did an awful lot of telling and a whole lot of not showing me why I should be sympathetic or why I should agree with the points of views of some of the characters. Angela Lansbury's character, Mrs. Potts, which is Emma Thompson in this one, sorry. So Emma Thompson's Mrs. Potts, uh, became something of a historian slash apologist. When the audience needed to know something about a character's past or its motivations, she would write it off with a couple of lines of dialogue that then was not backed up by anything that we saw on the screen. So, um, yes, some of my issues with the movie were departures from the original film. But I tried to separate myself from that as much as possible because I knew going into this, this wasn't going to be the original film. But a lot more of them actually were just just bad movie elements. Um, 
narratively. But then, I guess, and this is my other big critique of it, and I know some of the other stuff will be edited out, but I do want some of this to stay in, is post-production, it was billed as a very progressive movie. And this kind of ties back into what we were talking about with queer coding earlier. And once it came out on the the, the theater, I think it failed miserably in both any kind of push for LGBT inclusion. Uh, because, as I feared, uh, LeFou really was just what I thought he was going to be. He's just 100% a queer-coded character. Um, he's he's not he's not even shown to be a hundred percent gay there's a reference to him dating women and then a visual gag because he says well they think i'm clingy and he's hanging all over gaston so like it's it's funny from the audience perspective because you get that visual gag but at the same time it's kind of then derogatory towards gay men like are we all clingy is that how we do relationships um so that just that seemed odd and then he's just as culpable in all of the evil stuff gaston does as gaston and his whole redemption arc is literally two lines one of which he speaks in the marching song to the castle and then the other one miss Potts speaks where she just says oh he's not good enough for you honey and that's it like again the apologist of the movie saves the day and and we're just supposed to understand that LeFou is a good guy now. And it, I don't know. It just seemed really flat on the LGBT front. And then as far as the feminist front goes, this movie tells you that if you are in a position like Belle, your three choices are Stockholm Syndrome with the Beast, an abusive relationship with Gaston, or you can choose to remain single and you'll become like the spinstress begging on the street that we see earlier, who is also the evil enchantress. So, you know, those are your options. You can, you can be a witch, you can be, uh, you know, a battered wife, or you can, you can be a victim. Uh, and I don't understand how any of that is supposed to seem at all more progressive of a story or a, uh, an aspiration of young girls than the original story was. Now, as a couple defense points to the film, first of all, I would say that never was this film marketed as progressive unless you're talking about things that Emma Watson said, acting as not a representative of the film other than the fact that she was in the film. The studio, to my knowledge, never came out and said it was going to be this movie that fought for LGBTQ rights or women's rights. I feel like the director during any kind of press events never would have said anything like that. So maybe because Emma Watson is that kind of uh, like social justice fighter for women's rights or lesbian and gay rights, maybe that gives the impression that pictures she chooses to do always represents those things. But outside of her making remarks, I would not say, and I think it's kind of misleading to say that the film was billed as being this champion of progression or whatnot now that's not to say that it doesn't have pitfalls in the portraying of the characters like lefou or whatnot um and and we kind of talked about this after i had seen it immediately after i had seen it uh you know he does 
or is culpable for the things that Gaston did, like you were saying. At the same time, throughout the movie, even if there are only a few lines that hint at it, you know, when they're in the bar and they're going to lock up Belle's father for being crazy, you know, there are all these points in the movie where LeFou fights back, or when they go to leave him there, LeFou says, like, hey, is this the only option? So, like, they're consistently hinting at the fact that at the end of the movie, Josh Gad is probably going to jump ship. Um... But yeah, I mean, I, I guess that isn't necessarily uh, done well enough to make it seem like he's not just this evil gay dude. Um, and then the last thing that I was going to say was this is not necessarily on the fault of the storytellers, I would say, as much as it is really a limitation of a story itself, which is that, you know, the the whole point of the movie being a kid's movie is that it can be dumbed down and simplified. But when you make this a movie that is more accessible to adults and the story becomes an adult story, you kind of realize the pitfalls of the story and not just the storytelling. So when you're talking about the choices for Belle are just, you know, Stockholm Syndrome, abusive relationship, or die alone, well, that's really how the story was portrayed originally anyway. And the whole point of the movie is ridiculous. The thought that you could fall in love with somebody who was this monster dickhead who captured you. So, so the whole thing, really, you've kind of got to throw reality out the window anyway and then just kind of roll with the Disney vibes where things end up great for everyone, even though the prince really, even though he was redeemed in the end, was a jackass and didn't deserve anything good in his life. So, I mean, that's more a limit of, of the story before it was ever made into this movie or if it was a story before it was in the Disney movie than then it still would have been a limitation of that story, not necessarily the director or the the way they chose to go with it outside of just totally, you know, retelling the story in a completely different way, which would have pissed off infinitely more people. But valid complaints either way. Just as a quick rebuttal to to one of your things. Um, So, yeah, while the feminist side of it was never talked about from the studio and that did come from Emma Watson and her invitation to a screening of Gloria Steinem, who is the de facto leader of the feminist movement. Um, the gay thing was actually director Bill Condon when in an interview said that it's going to have a nice exclusively gay moment. So no, it was the studio. It was the director. <laughs> that, that, so it's a quote. It's going to have a nice exclusively gay moment. That's a studio, uh, condemning or I should say boosting their film as progressive. According to Condon, the change is a tribute to the late Howard Ashman who died of AIDS after writing the lyrics to the original film. It was intentional. It was supposed to be that way. And they failed. Nah, I don't buy that at all. Okay. One off remark by the director in one interview means that the whole point of the film was to be progressive. I didn't say the whole point of the film. I said that character's point. His arc was supposed to be a, a inclusive moment. But you said the film was billed as progressive. And what I'm arguing is that the average Joe who watched a trailer for that film or watched any kind of this pre-release footage would not have gotten that impression. I mean, this... This series of articles went completely viral on Facebook and social media. Every and it was boycotted by several religious groups because of this scene. Because of a sweet BuzzFeed article. To say that this was not visible or people wouldn't know this going in is also irresponsible. Like people knew this going in. People knew what to expect and we didn't get it. Fair enough. You can always go rewatch your copy of Milk. 
Moving on to Ghost in the Shell. I've never seen that movie. Well, you should. It's fantastic. We saw Ghost in the Shell together. I had just seen the Japanese version, uh, like the original version with the Japanese uh, voice acting, probably two to three weeks before. I saw the newer version with Scarlett Johansson. We talked about it last week in our whitewashing segment or a few weeks ago. Um, Didn't really have the highest of expectations, although I was kind of hoping it was going to be good. It was just that. It was good. I have an action movie scale in my mind where the Matrix is somewhere at the top. Judge Dredd is right behind the Matrix all the way down at the bottom. You've probably got something like the original Judge Dredd or most Sylvester Stallone movies. And this was kind of somewhere in the middle. It had an interesting plot. The visuals were very, very pleasing. The the way they used CGI was nice. If you're a fan of the original, there is a lot of fan service shot-for-shot remakes of the anime that I think uh, really just kind of evoke uh, this this feeling that it's, even though it's a modern-looking film, that it's still got these ties to this 20-year-old anime that I definitely appreciated. So... I think that overall I was happy with it, but you know, if it if it was something that you find on Netflix in a year or so and it's free to watch or you grab it in Redbox, go for it. But I think that when you look at a lot of these anime like Akira, like this, like some of the stuff that Miyazaki has done, I can see a lot of this getting remade into live action films and I would just kind of warn against that. It's almost like we feel like anime in the West, at least, isn't this valid form of storytelling. So the way to validate it is to make it into a live-action movie. And not that I love the original Ghost in the Shell, but with some of these other properties that I can see getting remade, it's like there's no real reason for uh, to trying to recreate these stories that really aren't that old when, to be quite honest, they're not going to live up to what the originals were. Uh, although, actually, I would say this one might have been on par with the original, but... Um, I know you had seen some of the TV show, the standalone complex anime stuff, and so kind of compared to that or just the movie by itself, how'd you think Scarlett Johansson did and just kind of your general thoughts on the film? So I actually thought it was pretty darn good. Um, I've seen it a second time since uh, we saw it, and uh, and it stood up in a second viewing as well. Um I felt obligated to see it a second time because I'll admit I was pretty tired when we went to see it with Gabby and uh, I did nod off uh, during one of the exposition moments uh, about two thirds or three quarters of the way through. Um, So I was like, no, I need to need to see it all. And I thought I did a pretty good job. Um, You know, whitewashing is still a pitfall that we want to avoid, but the vast majority of this cast was Asian. Um, It's really just... Scarlett Johansson and Bato's characters that weren't, and um, Bato is not Japanese in the original, so I don't know why people would expect him to be here. Um, the Major is an android, and arguably in a lot of the art of her, in the manga at least, she is not given uh, some of the like typical anime features that would denote that nationality so i mean because she's an android so she is meant to look a little different than everybody else just to kind of like set her aside so there's like a visual cue for the reader that she's not quite the same as everybody else which i think lends lends itself to the storyline um because i think you and i talked about this a little bit because you know the original story is more 
you know, a what am I? How do I fit into this world? Like, am I still human? Am I a robot? Um, and, and we get a little bit of that in this movie, too. Um, like in the scene with the geisha bots where Bato just turns to her and because she's seen the innards of the geisha bot and she's injured. So she sees the mechanical innards of her arm and Bato's just like, it's not the same. You're not the same. That's just a robot, you know, and try to like hammer that point home to her. Um, so uh, I, I think they did a pretty good job with it. It didn't really bother me that it was Johansson. Um, the studio executives and, uh, the original, some of the original casts, or not cast, some of the original production team around the mangas um, and the anime said that they, they greenlit her anyway. But, you know, I think it, the, I guess the most, the, and we talked about this last week, the, the problem was just with the internal email about maybe CGI here to be more Asian, which they did not do. Uh, so we did not have to worry about that. And, and it just it just wasn't like handled great because we still do see the scene in the beginning of the film that's kind of like, you know, remaking this Asian person and we're gonna make it a white person and kind of make it better, um, but arguably better, I guess, because you know, again, we have that whole humanizing aspect of, you know, whether the machine is really better than the person that it was before, sort of thing. And I think in the end, with the inclusion of the mother character, that really wasn't. A, a thing in the original anime if i'm if i'm remembering this right from my conversation with you um i think that that really kind of made it more human brought it home and her acceptance of the major as her daughter at the end did kind of alleviate in me a lot of the feelings you know that i would have maybe otherwise had about making that character anglicized um you know they anglicized the name too when they called her mira instead of makoto but then they they fixed that at the end so you know i think uh overall it was a really good film um i was actually excited when i walked out of it to maybe see them touch on some of the standalone complex stuff in maybe a sequel um i agree with you i think that a lot of these movies don't need to be remade that the anime format is a perfectly valid format and we can just leave things like that. I would say that's part of my argument with all of these Disney remakes too, because they're the same time frame. They're all done around like the nineties, these movies that Disney is rehashing. Um, so, well, some of them are earlier in their catalog too, but you know, it's just like, why, why we don't really need to. The original was fine. Um, so I don't understand why they're doing it either. But I guess anime, because it's a more action-y, you know, like a lot of the themes are very high action. It kind of lends itself more to a big Hollywood blockbuster sort of thing. I think the visuals were beautiful. It definitely evoked a sense of like Blade Runner um, or the fifth element in me where you've got this really nice futuristic setting that, that very is, is very well like integrated. Like everything works the way that you might imagine that it could work in the future. So that was really neat. I I enjoyed it. I liked it. Uh, I would like to see more. Yeah, I can definitely see it going forward, becoming a franchise, assuming the sales were there. I know it did okay. I think it was a little bit underwhelming the weekend it came out, but overall I think it was kind of a film that probably grabbed enough money globally that I can certainly see uh, a sequel getting greenlit. Um, either way, 
I think uh, we will definitely be seeing some more anime remakes. So buckle up, because here they come. Next segment, Jake, you were telling me on the phone the other day that that I think coming up, you are wrapping up a three-year campaign or storyline for a LARP group that you work with. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of a QA and a here where we go into kind of the basics and fundamentals of it and, you know, just overall what it's all about. Just to let people know who don't maybe have the same background or know as much about it as you do. So let's just dive right in with some questions here that I had written down. Uh, basic stuff. What is LARPing? How long have you been doing it? And, and kind of how did you get started? So uh, LARPing is an adjective that's based on an acronym. And the acronym is LARP, uh, Live Action Role Playing. And so the idea is that you take a role-playing game that you might get in a video game uh, like Fable, Mass Effect, Knights of the Old Republic, um, Dragon Age, and uh, or in a tabletop game like Dungeons and Dragons, um, Exalted, Vampire the Masquerade, and instead of playing it on the table where you're all hiding behind sheets and just imagining what your characters are, um, you actually portray those characters and it's all the dialogue is done in character you're dressed up as the characters and action whether it's you know social or combat also happens in character like in person so you are the one wielding the weapons um or where weapon actual weapons probably a little too violent for some of this then there are some elements that get brought over like instead of die rolling because that's really hard to do when you're standing around some of the systems use a system where it's like card pulling so you get a deck that has you know ace through ten and ace would be like a botch and ten would be like the best you could get Um, and you use that instead of your die roll to add to whatever your proficiencies are so you still have a character sheet um it's tucked away in your mind or your back pocket so you know what your abilities are and what kind of pulls you can do um but uh for you know the rest of it is just all kind of interpersonal stuff um which which can make it more dynamic if you're a pretty imaginative person um i've been doing larping since 2005 i got engaged with it uh with a what's called a boffer larp um, so a buffer LARP is one where you use foam weapons to, uh, act out your combat. And that was, uh, Amped Guard was the system that I played down in Miami when I was in college. And so that was a lot of fun. Amped Guard is very closely aligned with Dungeons and Dragons. You have like classes that you portray. I was a level two druid by the end of it. And you have spells that are like little balls of foam or cloth or something so you don't hurt people that you throw at people um for some spells and then some spells are just you you recite an incantation so it's it's kind of neat you know it's it's super geeky um but it's (laughs) but it's it's kind of cool you know to run around and you know i'm actually the one with the sword or the dagger that's going to drive it into your chest as opposed to having to imagine my character doing it um so that's yeah that's how i got started so it sounds like you kind of answered a couple of the questions here that I was that I was maybe thinking about asking about you know skill levels, abilities, experience, whatnot. So that stuff you know 
Thanks for clearing that up. I think one thing I just thought of as you were talking, are there campaigns that run both live action and turn-based versions of a LARP? Or is this uh, just depending on the system you're playing, you're using one or the other? Yeah, I guess it, it depends on the, the the setting that you're in. So in Amped Guard, everything is live action. Um, everything's happening immediately. And it's all, for the most part, very combat-oriented. But for a group like uh, Mind's Eye Theater, uh, which was formerly called the Camarilla, which was a group of live-action role players dedicated to the World of Darkness franchise from White Wolf Publishing, um, that ends up being a lot more turn-based. Because uh, that's just how the mechanics work in the regular tabletop version. So, you know, if, if there's an encounter where a dozen of the people are participating, then you still go around in a circle and ask everybody what their actions are, sort of thing. Um, but then there's also, you know, downtimes in between sessions that you can, you know, write to the, the people running it about what you're doing, what your character's, you know, keeping himself up to in between the sessions. Because the sessions are anywhere from weekly to monthly, uh, depending on how dedicated your group is. This one that just wrapped up for me was once every month. And, you know, it just, it just, you know, you can, you can sometimes if there are multiple storytellers for a campaign, um, then you can get some like one-on-one time with them to kind of act out the stuff that you're doing in real time while other people are participating in other parts of the plot. Um, and, and that way it's a little more rapid fire, fast paced, um, than, than when you're working in the group setting. So it, it just depends, I guess, on, on what exactly you're doing, how many people are involved, and what system that it's based on. Okay. Well, kind of tied to that when you're talking about, you know, the plot or advancing the story, I was, I've kind of had this idea, you know, when I'm playing a good game or watching a really good movie or something like that, you get enthralled, um, you kind of forget that you are, you know, that I'm Philip and I'm watching this and I can project myself into this story. So I guess that was another question I had was when you're doing the the role playing, is it something where in the back of your mind, you always have this thought that like, okay, this is, you know, role playing or this is kind of like a sport or an event more than it is a story. Um, or is it the opposite where really you're kind of into the character and you kind of get lost in it and, and you kind of put yourself into the story, whatever it may be. It's, it's kind of like six of one, half a dozen, another, some people really do get very into their character i found that the people who did that well and could separate themselves from their their regular existence i think it was a lot more fun to engage with than the people who were still just kind of like playing a character on a sheet and um you know you the one of the ways you gauge that is how much meta conversation is going on so for people who aren't uh, familiar with terms in gaming so like the meta story or meta knowledge is stuff that you take from outside the outside world like i as jacob may know more about the setting and what's going on than my character sam in this instance would know about what's going on and so sometimes people speak rather plainly about the knowledge that they have outside of their character and that's a little bit of a like, your suspension of disbelief is kind of violated for a second, and you have to kind of try to get back into character. Um, but I think for me, one of the big things uh, is, a, is a physical transformation for me. It was a lot easier for me to, to portray Sam when I had some... There was some makeup involved that I put on 
and uh, you know, there's a bit a costume that I always wore for him, um, and I actually changed my voice for him. So I don't know if you're familiar. I think I showed you at some point the sassy gay friend videos. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So uh, in this particular LARP setting. Um, it was a changeling setting, and the idea of changelings are much like lore. You know, somebody is taken away and somebody is substituted for them. Um, and so when you're taken away, you participate in all these fantastical fae kind of happenings with, you know, these evil twisted fairies. And then eventually you escape um, back into the real world, and now you have all these abilities and memories and probably derangements. Um and you're never quite human again. Um, and so his his character, because when you're in the Fey world, they can make you whatever they want to make you. And uh, as a result of of what happened to him in the Fey world and his the fetch is what's the thing that's left behind is called. And uh, most people end up killing theirs um, or just deciding to abandon their old life entirely. Um, Sam was actually one of the very rare, like, literally there are no mechanics for doing this in the actual game. It is that rare, um, people who reconciled and brought the fetch back into him. Um, and, and the fetch is always made from a part of your personage. And so the part of my personage that was taken out to make him was my homosexuality. So you can imagine just like this stereotypical flaming kind of, uh, effigy of me. Um, and then when that was merged back into me, I kind of like struck the middle point there where I was kind of like the surly kind of bitter gay guy that you see in like the sassy gay friend videos. And that's kind of what I based my character on was a sassy gay friend. <laughs> so I can't really do his voice. But what I discovered is I do a decent Paul Lind impersonation. So I just changed my voice and I was all over the place and fabulous, you know. And so just doing this voice made it so much easier for me to stay in character. (laughs) That sounds like Mandark from Dexter's Laboratory. That was (laughs) awesome. I think that character is is actually based on Paul Lynn's voice. And there are other characters that are based on his voice too. So like the the alien from American Dad. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure, sure, Right, sure. yeah, so there was an interview with uh, Seth MacFarlane there, and they were like, did you base that character's voice on Paul Lind? And he was, his response was just, duh, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> duh, you know, so people who aren't familiar, like Paul Lind, you know, awesome guy back in, like, the 70s, he was gay, but you couldn't really be outwardly gay. He was the center square in the original Hollywood squares. He was also the uncle in Bewitched. And uh, people from our generation probably know him better as Templeton the Rat from Charlotte's Web, singing about his smorgasbord. Um, so, you know, he he was a really, really cool guy. And so it was a lot of fun to do that. So that's, that's the way that I departed, you know, was just between the costume and the voice. It was very easy for me to separate, just step into Sam mode and feel things the way that I just, I think I just said Sam mode. That's, that's, that's an Andromeda like a verbal slip there, but um, Sam mode and uh, and kind of be that character. Okay. Well, hey, congratulations on hitting your three-year campaign goal there. Um, 
Real quick, for anyone who's looking to get into it, are there any kind of message boards or any way that someone can easily jump in and, and get to know who's around their area or maybe where they can go to start doing some live-action role-playing? Sure. I mean, you can uh, search for LARP, again, L-A-R-P, um, and you could say, like, LARP near me or something, and Google will probably turn up a few hits. Um, there are a couple associations, like I mentioned before, the Mind's Eye Theater Society or the Mind's Eye Society. Other than that, there's a ton of other groups around that you can get involved in. A lot of different Boffer LARP organizations. I think there are three or four with a basis here in Orlando. Um, so yeah, just a quick search will turn up a lot of those. Another good resource actually is um, the Society for Creative Anachronism. That's the medieval rec- uh, recreation group that I'm in. And um, although they will fight it tooth and nail if you ever tell them that the SCA is a LARP, it's a LARP. That's what we're doing. You know, we, we've made up these historically uh, adjacent characters. I won't call them necessarily historically accurate. Um, and we portray them and the way they go through their lives. Um, so, you know, it, it still kind of is a live action role play because we're those people um, that we're, you know, we're portraying. But when you get a group like that, that's interested in that sort of recreation guess what there's a ton of geeks and nerds there too and they probably do things like D games or larps and things so you know if you reach out to a, a large organization like that and we're, we're one of the biggest um and there's there's groups for the sca everywhere united states uh europe australia um i think there's one that's in korea now that's uh, in South Korea that's getting pretty popular too. So uh, we're everywhere. Um, you can find us and, uh, and we can lead you to, you know, down the rabbit hole to other nerdier pursuits like LARP. If that's uh, what you're so inclined, just, just don't lead with, Hey, so you're in this LARP. Can you tell me any others? Cause you might get slapped. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. If you have any more questions, feel free to shoot us a message on social media. I'm sure Jake would be happy to, rope you into the fantastic world of LARPing. Last segment we're going to talk about today is what we're playing, what's spinning in the console, what's stuck in the handheld. I'm going to jump in here first and talk about two games I'm going with right now. The first one is Bayonetta. I just bought a Wii U recently, and even though, or I should say, uh, in spite of the new version of Bayonetta that was just released on PC, I have the Bayonetta 1 and 2 collection that's on the Wii U. Uh, at the time when I bought it, it was the definitive version of Bayonetta, and then a week after that, they announced the Bayonetta PC port, which you can run at full 4K 60fps if you've got the hardware. Um, another little side note, that sold like 100,000 copies in its first week, and Sega was just kind of blown away by how successful it was, so... Pat yourself on the back if you are one of the few who, or one of the many who bought Bayonetta on the PC. Anyway, really fun uh, Devil May Cry style game where you're going around third person hack and slash. It's a, a kind of similar tale where it's a lot of demons and angels and heaven and hell and inferno and in between worlds and dimensions kind of a thing. But it's got this really sexed up uh, protagonist named Bayonetta who's kind of got the classic amnesia which is a trope that just gets destroyed and run into the ground in gaming but the way it's the story is told is is uh, i think interesting and the music is so good it's all of these like weird 
female pop coverings of random songs. So like you'll get like a fe- a female upbeat techno Frank Sinatra song that is like playing as you're killing these demons in a graveyard, and it's just this really bizarre like only in Asia kind of only in Asia kind of mashup that just for some reason works really well. So that's what I'm going with on the console. And then handheld wise, I have spent probably 20 hours the past week and a half playing this new game I picked up called Dragon Ball Fusions. And if you're not really a fan of Dragon Ball, it's still a fantastic game in its own right. But the thing I like about it is it kind of takes a lot of elements that make the Pokemon games very successful. This really intricate, but also at the same time very simple, kind of rock, paper, scissors style of combat where you have this person who's weak to this thing, this person's weak to this thing, and that person's weak to something else, and it kind of goes round robin, so you have to plan ahead. But it's a it's an interesting turn-based 5 versus 5 brawler where you're not really actually doing a lot of one-on-one fighting like in the older Budokai games that were on the PS2. Uh, it tells a story that is both within the same universe of the regular series, but is also kind of a multiverse story where these guys gather all the Dragon Balls and instead of wishing for eternal life or crazy powers, they wish for the greatest martial arts tournament of all time. And so the dragon goes and pulls all these martial artists from the DBZ universe from different timelines, and you get these crazy like dream matchups. The cool thing about it is because it's Dragon Ball Fusions, the emphasis in the game is fusions. So characters that were not previously fused can come together and make these just crazy fusions that you would have only ever dreamed of. And then there are even five-way fusions where your whole team comes together and makes this crazy mega warrior that can like wipe an entire other team in a minute. So, so not only is the gameplay extremely fun and rewarding, it's also got really good storytelling and leveling. So it's kind of one of those games where all of the elements build on each other. And just like in Pokemon, you've got the exploration, you've got the building of your characters. That's kind of what this game does too. So you get just enough of a bump every time you level up a new power, a new Kamehameha move, a new fusion that it just keeps stringing you along. And then before you realize it, you've spent like 15 or 20 hours playing this just fantastic game on your 2DS. But that's all I've got. And then I will go ahead and kick it over to you, Jake. What are you playing right now? Well, Dragon Ball Fusions actually sounds like a lot of fun. I may have to pick that up. Um, but first, I should probably finish Pokemon Moon. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm playing a lot of Dragon Age. Um, I'm looking forward to that probably being the next unfinished business segment that we uh, record. And I'm still really enjoying that. Um, while you were down, you got to watch me play a little bit of it and like a dick you threw me to the wolves with this encounter that was way above my pay grade so now i'm gonna have to figure out how to back out of that before i just get slaughtered repeatedly in this loop um but that's that's been a lot of fun and uh the other cancel the other game i'm playing is uh mass effect andromeda and you know i'm not gonna do like any kind of full review here but so far it's been very underwhelming um, the graphics have been awfully glitchy. They did just release that patch. Um, it was like 2.3 gigabytes worth of information just to fix all of the, the interactions between characters that you see, like the cutscene graphics and facial 
uh, issues. Um, you know, you had issues before where your characters either had like lazy eyes or just kind of wander around. Or my personal favorite was like paranoid, not Shepard, where writers' eyes were like darting back and forth as far as they could in their sockets from left, right, left, right, left, right. Like while he's having this <laughs> otherwise serious conversation. Um, so it, it, uh, it's, it's been. I mean that that part of it's been a letdown. The biggest letdown really is the story. Um, just some weird consistency things with the original, and they they've tried to like distance themselves from the original as much as possible. Um, so much so that your decision at the end of Mass Effect Three has no bearing on the storyline here. Literally, all they ask you is whether or not your Shepherd was male or female. Nice. Um, and it just it was just weird you know you don't get a whole lot about this company that you're working for you don't really understand like where in the timeline this fit because nowhere in mass effect did you see any kind of a mass exodus happening around the time of the end of mass effect 2 to the beginning of mass effect 3 you know and there's not really a lot of like reason given for this exodus either in my mind the greatest reason would be to escape the reapers right but the world is still not taking Shepard seriously until the beginning of 3 when the Reapers directly attack Earth, right? So, again, there's, like, no sense of urgency that would make people make this expedition, you know? And I feel like if even if it was just a, an expedition of scientific merit that they were working on, that maybe they would have said something, like, anywhere in the original game. Some people have noted that there is there are some references to an initiative, uh, when you're running around um, and some of the things that you interact with or whatever in the original Mass Effect games. Um, to me, that's really not quite enough writing on the wall. Um, actually, when I encountered those sorts of things in the original Mass Effect games, I always just thought that they were talking about Cerberus. And a lot of the technology that we see in Andromeda does kind of seem like maybe Cerberus had its hands in this somehow. So... Um, you know, we'll see. I've not gotten that far into the story to know whether or not they actually do loop it into Cerberus or not. Um, but it's just, you know, like, you know, right in the... And this isn't ruining anything. This is the very first mission of the game. But, you know, there's a scene where your your dad dies and then the, the, the whole mission is then thrust upon you, which is another trope that they do all the time in games, right? And movies. And it just feels completely hollow because you don't know anything about them, this this character, right? You've not had any kind of introduction to him, not had any kind of interaction with him before this happens. And personally, I was like, thank God, one of the dialogue options was I didn't really know him. Because that's as much as me, a player, could summon to say about this character. So I was really glad I wasn't shoehorned into saying something emotionally provocative for this thing that I really just did not care about uh so you know that's that's kind of a letdown yeah i think that you know the characters and the the purpose was a lot better in the original uh glitches aside because all games launch with glitches i mean they're not that big a deal um it's just the the gameplay is fun the core gameplay is fun and i found that as i got more engaged in it and i got a little bit further in the story the stuff about the story didn't bother me as much, and it was more just, okay, this is a familiar gameplay style to the original Mass Effect series, where you're doing the same kind of exploration and grindy and 
combat oriented missions that it just it I did slip back into a bit of a comfort zone, you know, but I am still kind of jarred out of that comfort zone when it comes to some of the dialogue that you have with the characters where it's like, oh no, this is not the same thing. Um but you know, we'll we'll see going forward. I know a lot of people have issues with like the character editor, and I agree with those. Your options are really limited. Um, I understand why they're limited because apparently the depictions of your father and possibly even the still image of your mother that you get in your codex are based on how you make your character look. So if you make your character look more Asian or more like African or more co- you know, like white like your parentage actually shifts a little bit to make your your physical uh race look like your parents um so i i guess that's you know you can only control for so many variables there so they do kind of want to like shoehorn you into certain appearances i see like why they did that but it still just felt weird because it's very hard to make a character that actually looks decent um so i'll i'll keep going with it and we'll see going forward if the uh, story picks up or if if the gameplay just gets awesome enough that I just forget that I'm, you know, playing a story and I just feel like I'm playing another Mass Effect, you know, clone and then I'm happy. Yeah, I'll probably wait on that one till there's some kind of complete edition with all the DLC and everything fixed up and wait to judge it at that point. But just based on what I've heard from pretty much everyone, I think it sounds like a strong pass at the moment, especially if you were a just expecting something as magical as the original trilogy. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to bottle lightning twice, and I don't think any of us really expected it to be the exact same or as good. I think we all expected it to be different, but yeah. it's it's been not, a not great version of different so far. Well, you know what? That's how I would sum up this entire podcast. It's hard to bottle lightning twice, from remaking Disney films to cashing in on anime franchises, to tacking on to series that maybe didn't need to be expanded like in Mass Effect. Uh, Eventually someone's going to learn that maybe good enough uh, should be left alone. That's going to be all this week for the Balmore Brothers. I'm your host, Philip, And I'm your host, Jacob. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.